The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux at www.freedomainradio.com Chapter 17 Ladies Who Lunch Angela Bugle lunched with the ladies every week. They met at the Burma Club, a fortress of old money in North Toronto, where a nostalgia for the heady days of old colonialism was evident in the fact that none of the serving staff were even remotely white. In the winter they sat overlooking the ice-skating rink where blonde girls with spider legs spun and floundered under the snarls of beefy, heavily-accented coaches. In the summer they sat under patio umbrellas and grew lethargic under the combination of intense sunlight and the druggy sight of slow-motion lawn bowlers. Lunch at the Burma Club had followed many phases over the years, among which were, "'He just isn't the man I married.' I had no idea men farted that much. My father certainly didn't. He works too much. Does his sexual drive ever diminish? Ah, oh, I've given up asking him to help around the house. Do I want a child? I already have my husband. I had no idea babies were that much work. Will I ever get my figure back? My nipples are killing me. And for a top-heavy woman whose baby would not breastfeed, I can't believe I've been carting these goddamn things around since I was eleven, and they don't even work. It's all right for him. He sleeps on business trips. Getting into Montessori is hopeless unless you know someone. Do you? I don't remember having to be taught to stop picking my nose, if I ever did. Isn't it something that's just supposed to happen? He's so much like his father, it's chilling. They both stare at me, fists on hips, and I just want to scream. So he comes home, and he's just, now take care of me. So I'm fixing him dinner, and my son comes screaming in with a bloody knee, and then my husband tells me about his trip, and my daughter needs help with her homework, and then my husband comes rubbing up against me while I'm brushing my teeth, and I, I sometimes just wish I had pepper spray coming out of every pore. Oh, sorry, he says, I just missed your vagina. But I know, he just wants to go there. But I'm afraid that if I let him go there, he'll never want to come back. And what if it loosens everything and I have to wear depends like June Lockhart? He wants a maid because he doesn't want to do anything. Hell, I'd pay her to go, to go upstairs with him so I didn't have to do anything. What is the line between kinky and perverse? Lord, I passed that line years ago. Now I'm on all fours in a girl-guide uniform, baaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
any 8 to 10% mutual fund has some risk, and even at 9% will take more than 8 years to double our money. So what are you thinking? Well, I've done some calculations. By my estimation, I've spent over 20 minutes a day, 5 days a week, 52 weeks a year, doing something I find quite boring and predictable. <sighs> it wasn't so boring at the beginning before he decided what I liked. Over 20 years, that's over 100,000 minutes, 1,733 hours, almost a year of full-time work. And sometimes it's real work, not just lunch and meetings and conference calls. Are you suggesting that we charge our husbands back? Yes, but not for what you think, you shameless sluts. What then? Business talk. Oh. Yeah, I prefer sex with a headache to having to hear him complain about his partners. Or the programmers who never get it right. Or how the board just doesn't understand his vision. Oh, wait, the government funding that is always promised but never comes. The accountant who can't add. The auditor who has it in for him. The guy who might be embezzling. The woman who doesn't want to come back from maternity leave. Oh, Lord, it's enough to make me pull my hair out right here, right now. I need another scone. Vasquez, Vasquez, dear, another scone? No butter. Sure, they don't use any making them. Shut up. So, we've had all this whining about work, but of course, we also know how the businesses are doing. I mean, we really know how the businesses are doing. You're talking about an inside job. Lord, we're not robbing a bank, we're just looking after our own interests. Insider trading is illegal. So is the pyramid scheme. We're not talking about millions, I'd be happy with doubling my money. Billions change hands every day. Would the market really collapse over our 17,000 apiece? And Lord knows we deserve something, all that listening, all those years. Ugh, it's easier to fake an orgasm than an interest in boardroom politics. But it's so easily traceable. Not really. All we need to do is create a corporation only about a grand, put someone's name on the board, someone whose husband doesn't work in a startup, and trade through that. Even if there was some kind of investigation, the numbers would be too small to get anyone's attention. And even if someone looked into that company, they would have to know that we were all friends, and then would have to prove that our husbands passed confidential information to us, and that we then shared it with each other, and that it influenced stock purchases. It all sounds a little risky. Insider trading is quite easy to detect. Any stock movement before an announcement is suspect. But it is almost impossible to prove unless the company executives do it themselves. Now, if we cross-invest, I invest for Sally, Sally for me, then we're fine. And ladies, let's look at it from another angle. How are you all fixed for retirement? But such steps are not all made at once. Amoral people do not consummate their relationship with illegality without some ritual self-seduction. Here's what I think. It's risky, it could backfire, and 17000 in the hand is worth something. Got to be less than a month as we spend, and our husbands have a lot of stock options, but they're most, mostly in escrow. What's that? It means that you can only sell a third of your stocks a year, say, over three years. It's so executives who are hired don't sell everything after the first year and vanish. But to buy and sell the stock without any legal restrictions would be great. How the hell do we declare the money? We don't have to. It's a legitimate investment by a corporation. In fact, we're better off than we are with the pyramid money because that is pure cash. Ooh, I hate having it in the house. But this is all academic. We don't even know if there are any opportunities out there. How many of your husbands are in startups? Okay, so seven of us. You? He's between jobs. Working in a bank, some vice president thing. Well... That might be okay. So, let's do this. Ladies, feel out your husbands. Take a little interest, but not enough to startle them. Get the lay of the land. Wait, I'm not saying we do anything yet. All I'm saying is that we see if anything is possible. If not, no harm done. If so, we can revisit and walk away if we don't like it. Come on, ladies, wouldn't you all like a little bit of a mission? Doesn't it make being a wife just a little more exciting? Of course it did, and there were sudden secret smiles and the raising of tall glasses over the white tablecloth, while, far above these idle climbers, the snows began to tremble. Chapter 18 Pomo in Slow-Mo Complicating Language Rudy, a.k.a. the Babblefish, was a bit of a computer nut, his fascination with language drew him to the hard, clean text of coding, 
and his delight in talking gave him the inspiration for an internet show. He wrote obsessively ten, twenty pages a day at times, but it was not as satisfying as it once was. He felt he was sort of boxing himself in with paper. As a diversion, he decided to record himself. He got a cheap webcam, some cardboard stock, and chose one of his journal entries to read. He wrote headings on the cardboard and held them up to introduce his segments. His first segment was an explanation of his nickname. He held up a placard and began speaking. The Babelfish, a.k.a. If the Tower of Babel had reached hell, we would all speak thusly. I have been nicknamed the Babelfish in homage to the great Douglas Adams. In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Babelfish was a little creature you dropped into your ear which would then translate all languages for you. Now, I am flattered by the comparison, but even I am stymied by postmodernist language. In order for something to be translatable, it must have content. You can only translate gibberish into different gibberish, and that should give us some pause. Like all things of great power, language can be used for good or ill. It can clarify or it can obscure. Those who are living a lie or have something to hide favor language which obscures. Those in search of the truth or who have clear consciences favor clarity. The invention of words is the special playground of specialists. Generally, specialists invent words for two reasons, to ensure exclusivity and to promote insecurity. There are places where this is fairly harmless. No one is expecting that legality without Latin would be perfectly clear, or that removing scientific names would clarify all biology. However, there are disciplines that should be understood by the educated public, but which are blurred by stranger syllables than the Welsh nickname of an Aztec god. In particular, modern philosophy is prone to this kind of distortion, where simple thought balloons are twisted into helium replicas of London subway maps. This same problem occurs in the realm of literary criticism, sociology, minority history, women's studies, particularly difficult, and social anthropology, which will only be clarified if and when anyone figures out what the hell it actually is. Complicating language provides the following advantages to the specialist. It confuses the layperson into believing that the discipline is very, very difficult. It obscures unoriginal thought. It helps keep clear thinkers away. Get enough weird sentences together, you're off to a nifty conference someplace warm. It removes the need for action, since no one understands what is being said. For the same reason, it also eliminates the possibility of criticism. It allows you to restate the same position many, many times under many guises. It allows for complete subjectivity in marking students, since words can mean anything. Only unoriginal, third-rate thinkers benefit from this situation. These people have taken over our universities, and their defenses are very good. Their airborne venom keeps all clarifying contenders away. To go through the ten to twelve years of education at their hands, to have to contend with them at every step, to be denied satisfaction or praise, to never get a job, to have to fight for marks, to spend a decade or more like an air-starved diver keeping a greased octopus at bay. Ugh, who has the stomach and integrity for that? One might as well expect the civil service to reform itself from within, or state-sucking companies to argue against corporate welfare. There are several nifty tools available to these postmodernists for whom, for those who might be accessing this broadcast from beyond the walls of higher learning, everything is relative. Rudy held up another card. Tool number one, Agenda. The term agenda is of great value because it attempts the deconstruction of the language of vested authority groups to reveal the hidden power structures and assumptions behind their words. It is generally used thus. Corporations have an agenda which includes the economic overthrow of third-world governments. As far as can be ascertained, agenda means this. People sometimes lie to protect their interests. Rudy smiled. This might not be called the greatest of insights, but in the hands of postmodernism, it becomes more than an insight, but a species of physics as unquestionable as gravity. A corporate spokesperson, for instance, is always lying because he has an agenda. His or her falsehood does not have to be proved. This is mendacious because of the following. 
If all communication from power groups is false because of their hidden agendas, then we should discount the arguments of all postmodern intellectuals. Academics in particular have a stranglehold on the creation and dissemination of educated thought. Surely these academics represent a power group even more entrenched than multinational corporations, which do not have tenure, compete globally, and who, as a rule, do not derive most of their income from the government. One may well ask, if all power groups have a hidden agenda, what, then, is the hidden agenda of postmodernists, radical feminists, unions, government workers, teachers? Ah, but the hidden agendas of these power groups, all paid for and protected by the government, are never questioned. What is common is that all these groups, which take money from taxpayers who often oppose them, object to private companies which cannot forcibly take money from consumers. It is forced association versus freedom of association. Psychologically, ascribing your own nefarious motives to your enemies is called projection. Thus, we should simply use the arguments of the postmodernists to defeat their own positions. All power groups lie. You are a power group. Be gone! Tool number two. Appropriation. Now, this term has a dual use. First, it refers to the inability of white people to accurately speak for those who are oppressed, or to appropriate the voice of the disenfranchised. I don't think it bars Indian writers, though, from writing about the racism of the Wasp Raj. Postmodernists object to this kind of literary colonialism, I assume, because they do not believe that different cultures can ever understand each other. This belief is not considered at all at odds with the POMO value of multiculturalism. The word appropriation is related to the word appropriate, which is the aesthetic approach to ethics, and is about as moral as a postmodernist is allowed to get. In the POMO universe there is no such thing as right and wrong or universal values, but there is infinite respect for local tribal customs. Intolerance of the values of others is never sanctioned, except for oppressed cultures which are always allowed to hate white capitalism. The concept of appropriate is the sort of morality which would be invented by a radical spinster aunt on steroids. It is designed to turn ethics into a kind of aesthetic bullying, without reference to root causes or reasoned arguments. Modern theorists reject underlying moral principles because they contradict the rampant relativism of the POMO world. For fun, it's worth asking POMOs just why a certain action would be considered appropriate than turning the tables around. Try this. Ask why multiculturalism is a value, then on hearing the reply that you must respect the values of another culture, ask whether that means that the Muslim world is more evil than the North American world, since the Muslim governments jail and murder atheists. Ah, the spluttering, the rage, the insults, the backpedaling... In the time of Socrates, these people were called sophists because they claimed knowledge that they could not prove and taught that ideas were a means to power, not truth. In the medieval period, these people were called scholastics. They killed Western thought by arguing whether Adam had a belly button or whether the next generation came from after Cain and Abel. They argued about words, not reality. Nothing could be proven because the best they could aim for was consistency with the irrational premise of biblical absolutism. Now we are in a new dark age. Our philosophers argue in a vacuum detached from reality, society, honesty, and rationality. As if surprised at his own words, Rudy glanced down and up again, straight into the little camera. For the first time in his life, his eyes burned with a clarity of purpose. And do you know, he said slowly, almost shyly, I am honestly considering drawing my sword. After finishing the above rant, talk, random harangue, eh, whatever it was, he posted it to his website and sent out mass emails inviting people to come and have a look at his little digital soapbox. Chapter 19. Terry's First Demo Terry managed to create the first version of the software in just over four weeks, finishing in early April. 
Dave allowed him to hire a friend of his from school, Pierre Larin. Pierre was an irreverent and swarthy Quebecois, with hair like a low black Cro-Magnon awning, chubby cheeks, an eyebrow piercing, a fondness for music which sounded like banshees being electrocuted, and a considerable talent for writing code. Together they pieced the interface together and finished the navigation buttons. As yet, the software didn't really do anything, it just stored data, but they could type stuff in and click around. Ted Howell from Cyrux came in to review the program and sat through a fairly short presentation in the cold, bright boardroom where everyone had to lean forward and squint to see the overhead projection. When it was over, Dave said, So, Ted, what do you think of the fruits of our young geniuses? Not bad, said Ted, nodding slowly. Good for our first briefing, but it would be better if for a U.S. state only the U.S. states showed up as choices in the province box. Terry hesitated. But, but you you have only two sites in the U.S. Dave snorted. Is that very hard to do? No, not really, but is it worth it for only two sites? Ted frowned. What if we get more? It wouldn't be hard to choose the right states if you add only one every six months. Ted shook his head. I think it would be easier if they were filtered. You're supposed to be the best. Consider it done, grinned Dave. He jotted something down on Terry's notepad. Terry glanced down and read, Let me talk. Later that afternoon, Ted phoned Dave and said that it was crucial that the label for province be changed to state when a U.S. site is selected. All right, said Terry, when Dave told him. But what about zip codes versus postal codes? Yeah, nodded Dave. They should switch, too. This is going to take more time. I understand. Terry paused. Are we going to charge them more money? Terry, this is our first account. The success of this project will entirely determine the success of our company as a whole. News of what you're doing is out in the marketplace. Every single one of our competitors, as well as our strategic partners, and at least two startups thinking of entering this field, are watching us like hawks to see if we screw this up. And they're sure we will. That we can't deliver what we promised. That we're amateurs. I brought all this capital together, made personal pledges to our investors, mortgaged my house and ran up more credit than the third world fucking country on the assumption that you could do what you told me you could do. Dave's cheeks were beet red. So just do it. There was a long pause. Terry's eyes were wide, his heart hammered in his chest. It was like a mountain falling on a little fern. He nodded, went back to his desk and started typing, trying to breathe deeply into his helium chest. After about an hour, he was done, had tested his changes, and all was well. He felt pleased. Then he looked forward and saw that there was a little box for recording chemical throughput, which had a little units box, which on this screen read, liter. Then suddenly the floor spun and fell beneath him. The following thoughts occurred in quick succession. We'll have to be able to switch between metric and imperial. Those calculations aren't too bad. I have to get a list of the units they use. Oh, God! What happens if a manager in the U.S. wants to see the Canadian totals in imperial? Or a Canadian manager wants the U.S. totals in metric? Or if they want to know if there is too much benzene in the water, the legal limits and storage units must be interchangeable? What if they try to import U.S. data processed at a Canadian lab, or vice versa? No, that can't be allowed, but I'll have to check for it and block users if they try it. What if they try to run a Canadian chemical standard against a U.S. water result? Why would they try that? Well, they can create their own internal standards, and they might want to do that. I, I could block it. Now, in every terror-struck examination of a sudden change in software architecture, there comes a point where hope fails, weekends dissolve, inspiration dies, and the death march begins. For Terry, it was when the following thought struck him. The reports will have to display both metric and imperial results, or a choice of each depending on what the user wants. When Terry realized that the whole metric-imperial problem was going to take probably six to eight weeks of extra work, he sat at his desk for over an hour. His screensaver came on, and he moved his mouse. He continued staring, then his screensaver came on again. Dave came in and interrupted him. 
Terry, I want you to do me a favor. Ted just called, and he's talked my ear off about how long it takes him to produce his quarterly reports. The same thing he told you about when he was here. So he's faxed me a sample of one of these reports. We're going to have to look at how we can produce these, buddy. They don't look too bad to me, but I'm no genius. Let me know in the morning, but don't work all night. Dave winked and left the office. Terry glanced at the time on his computer's taskbar. 4.32. Feeling even more surreal, Terry flipped open the thick file. The bane of the database programmer stared at him. Word processing documents. His heart failed him. Databases cannot produce word processing documents. Database reporting systems are designed for repetitive processing. Lists of sales with intermittent totals. Word processing documents are free-form by nature and can wander anywhere. Terry took a deep breath and shook his head quickly, driving the sick feeling from his chest. It was replaced by a rather giddy and unstable sense of confidence, and he began to type. Chapter 20 Gordon talks about the possibility of a great idea. Gordon experienced all the terror and joy of a man waiting for a great idea. He hovered over his creative faculties like a parachutist over a volcano, floating over grinding elemental heat, afraid to look down, unable to move away. Something was coming. He knew it. It was impossible to avoid, impossible to guess at, impossible to communicate to others. One depressing but volatile conversation occurred in the cafeteria, where a group of students had returned from their first career day. They sat at one of the long, tan plastic tables. There was a short silence. Somewhere down the hall, screaming could be heard. Obviously, an experimental play was undergoing a workshop, and the thin but ugly theatre girls were clearly giving it all they had. Various groups sat scattered around the cafeteria, a huge room with floor-to-ceiling windows, which always seemed far too bright, except at night when it was depressing. In one corner sat the Guerrilla Easters, the South American students who wore combat fatigues, red t-shirts with monochrome outlines of Che Guevara, bandanas, and perpetual scowls. They seemed to live on bananas and milk, and their hands were never still. From a distance, it looked as if they were trying to mime multinationals out of existence. Not far from them were the slightly desperate Marxists, who were given to arguing that everyone had gotten it wrong and communism deserved another chance, that it had been subverted from within by some as-yet-unidentified corporate element. They argued loudly, but their plans were always being interrupted by rotating phalanxes of pimply revolutionaries going outside to smoke. They always had a goodly space around them, since they seemed selflessly dedicated to the proposition that deodorant and showers were a capitalist conspiracy. In another corner was the mangy pack of the student newspaper staff. They wore thin, threadbare sweaters, baggy black jeans with proletariat keychains and faded wallet imprints, and sported generic sneakers and little Lennon sunglasses which they pushed back on their greasy hair with ink-stained hands. They were currently discussing, in the most derisive terms, an article submitted by Gordon, which started off thus. Marxism, spelt M-A-R-K-S-I-S-M. Since the fall of the Soviet Empire, Marxism has fallen into sad disrepute. This is a great shame, because there is great power in this idea. As a means of rescuing Marxism, M-A-R-X-I-S-M, I humbly submit that it should be renamed Marxism, M-A-R-K-S-I-S-M, and applied to our fair and noble university. Under Marxism, the marks of every student will be entered into a common pot. This pool of marks will then be redistributed from high-performing students to those who, through no fault of their own, are getting lower marks. In this manner, no student will ever fail. The more fortunate will help the less fortunate. Student siblinghood will result. Those students who would have excelled under the old exploitive system should be more than happy to donate their excess marks to the less fortunate brethren and sistren. And really, how many marks does one student need? A pass is a pass is a pass. Those who complain are selfish tools of the multinational running dogs and will be dealt with accordingly. 
Now, it is entirely possible that reactionary elements will stage a passive resistance to this plan and refuse to produce the excess marks required to save their brothers and sisters. But we, Marxists, have anticipated such obstructionism. We shall measure every student's IQ and then determine how many marks we can expect him or her to produce. Any who produce less are clearly malingering and will be dealt with accordingly. But what if they fake their IQ tests? Then we shall measure the sizes of their brains. Or we can look at the marks their fathers attained, at the expense of the less fortunate students, of course, and require that they provide us no less. In the short run, this will require a large expansion in the powers of the current administration. But have no fear. In the long run, when everyone becomes equal, we will need no administration at all. The left-wingers on the student newspaper did not like the article, but they were short of text for that week's edition, so they were fiercely debating whether or not to run it. Gordon's group, fresh from a grim recitation of the challenges of securing employment after graduation, were most glum. Well, that was depressing, said one. Yeah, said another. Six hundred PhDs graduating this year, all competing for twenty-three positions? Not all full-time, even, said another. And only a few with good tenure-track? It's hopeless. I don't agree, smiled Gordon. I am full of hope. What do you hope to gain from university, Gordon? asked another. Gordon pursed his lips. I am here for my great idea. Ooh! That brought the table's chatter to a halt. They could all hear both capital letters, the G and the I. What? asked one man, his eyes wide. I believe that I have a great idea in me, said Gordon. A young woman frowned. Like Derrida? No, n not a great idea that no one understands, said Gordon, or quotes with only impartial understanding. A great idea that can be expressed in a sentence, like Aristotle's The Pursuit of Excellence is the Good Life. I don't care if it needs a thousand pages of reasoning before it. I will come up with something that cannot be distorted, or misunderstood, or twisted into something it's not. Something that is simple, clear, beautiful, and true. There was a shocked silence. A man laughed. <laughs> Where the hell does that come from? Another waved his hand skyward. Lord, smash the vanity of this reckless sinner! Another snorted. From the bottom of the great mudslide of knowledge, where twenty years of training is required to make it to the edge of quantum physics, you want to come up with something simple? At a university? A woman giggled. Oh, this is going to be like a year-long car crash. It can't not look. Have you talked to an advisor about this? Gordon shook his head. I am terrified to talk to an advisor. A woman smiled. Why? They'll take your terror away. Of course, they'll also take your sight, soul, and will to live. Academia is the sanctuary for small minds, said a man. Little minds, said another. Tiny penises, added another. Wide vaginas? How do you disparage a woman's reproductive organs? Dustiness? The number of bats? The intense guarding of food long rotted? Ew! scowled the woman. Gordon raised his hand. Hello, can we come back? One man shook his head. Gordon, man, do you know what the odds are of having a great idea? It's like planning for your retirement by playing the lottery. No, more people win the lottery. It's like wanting to be a better novelist than Dickens, better dramatist than Shakespeare, sexier than Russell Crowe. You are quite mad, declared a woman. There hasn't been a great idea since... When? A man frowned. Do we count ideas which say they can be no great ideas? I don't know. Good question. I would say that... Well, can we say that... Uh, uh, okay, what was the last great idea which is still believed? Marxism? What about the welfare state? The great society? Oh, let's not count politics. Or economics, that rules out Marxism. The last great idea... Not just a bon moss like Bertrand Russell. Nietzsche, said Gordon. Nietzsche? Master and slave morality. Not a system of thought, but an incredibly powerful idea. But doesn't Nietzsche just say that there is no real morality? 
and therefore not a great idea, but more the destruction of great ideas. Well, what the hell do we mean by a great idea, then? Something that is still believed to be true, like relativity in physics? Atoms. Wow. An idea still in practice, not Marxism, not socialism, not economics. Something contributed by philosophy which is still useful, still in use, there was a long, long pause. A girl with green hair wandered past, handing out leaflets about a play called My Father is a Banana. Well, said Gordon finally, I have something, but we have to go back a ways. How far? Over four hundred years. Okay. Francis Bacon, The Scientific Method, that was a great idea, undebatable, still in use, still valuable. Oh, come on, in the last four hundred years? Nothing else? How about Kant's idea that an action is an ethical if you benefit from it? That's still debated, I think. Virtue is its own reward, all that. Another pause descended. This was a most interesting exercise, in that it was tough and dangerous to their sense of purpose. What about human rights? Somewhat political, but still they have a basis in enlightenment thought. Uh, but the concept of human rights, said Gordon, is not used that way any more. Now human rights include the right to shelter, food, medical care, something which would not have occurred to the thinkers of the enlightenment. The concept has been uh, modernized, let's say. There was another pause. A woman sighed. <sighs> wow. The man looked up. Okay, think of the biggies. Is there a God? Uh, are the senses valid? What is true? What is good? No definite answer exists for any of them. Good God, I am so depressed, said a young man. If you want to be depressed, said Gordon, leaning against the table with a smile, let's talk about the last great idea before the scientific method. Before Bacon? Well, medievalism is out, all that scholasticism... The Dark Ages, who cares? The Romans, rank copycats, except for the phalanx. The Greeks, right, nodded Gordon. What is still in use from the Greeks? Prison sex? Public smoking? Aristotelian logic, cried one man, snapping his fingers. I think so, said Gordon. The three laws of logic, syllogistic reasoning, those are all still in use. Not universally, but when brought up, they're not automatically dismissed. White guy logic. What are you saying? demanded a woman. Are you saying that there have been only two great ideas in all recorded history? No, replied Gordon, just that I can only think of two philosophical ideas almost completely accepted and in wide use. What about feminism? she asked. Well, thank you for asking in a non-belligerent tone. What about feminism? Is it almost completely accepted? Very few people would still say that women should not be equal. Actually, said Gordon, many feminists say just that, in arguing for preferential hiring policies and wealth redistribution. That is to redress an imbalance. Well, that's their argument, of course. But my point is that the concept of equality is not agreed on by all feminists, let alone society as a whole. And, of course, there are many women who do not want feminists to speak either to or for them. All right, let's leave that off the table for a moment. Anything else? Democracy. Gordon paused. Political, but let's look at that. The concept of voting covers both the murder of Socrates and the election of a leader in a free country. Voting without human rights, which cannot be overridden, is just mob rule. The majority can vote Hitler in, or to take away the rights of a minority. Democracy has changed many times since the days of ancient Greece. Now it's a war between rich and poor, with the middle class as hostage. I wouldn't say that the concept of democracy is universally shared or accepted. The separation of church and state? Again, political, and religious as well. This is still being debated, especially in the U.S., and most churches operate tax-free, even in Western countries. What I am talking about is ideas which are no longer debated. You can't go to a scientific conference and advocate overturning the scientific method. You'd be laughed out of the place. But if you show someone that their argument contradicts itself, especially in religion, they will say that logic has no validity but faith rules. Gordon nodded. True. But they will not say that their argument is true despite being illogical. 
they will say that it is true outside the realm of logic. To maintain their belief, they have to escape logic, which is very different from saying that logic is wrong. There was another pause. So what you're saying, Gordon, my lad, is that there have been only two great ideas in the history of thought, and that you hope to add your own to this illustrious pile. I do. You are quite mad. Gordon smiled. I know. I can't wait to hear it. Me either, said Gordon with great feeling. Chapter 21 the boy band is discussed. Al called Justin and the others into his office, and they all sat in the little room together. Al's office was a shrine to the memory of dead bands. A goodly number of the black-and-white pictures of band members covering his walls were of young men with big eighties blonde hair, narrow leather ties, little pointy ankle-high boots, and parachute pants. The key seemed to be no natural fibers and no natural hair colors. All right, said Al, I've made some inquiries, and there's some key ingredients in a successful boy band. He stood up, opened a foul-smelling marker, and wrote the following on a small whiteboard. Sentimental sexuality. Good, clean fun, with a hint of danger. Sensitive, respectful, polite, smoldering. A focus on dating, not screwing. Archetypes. Brooding, sexy, sensitive, pretty, mature. Good knees. And that's about it, he finished. Any thoughts? Well, said Justin slowly, just off the top of my head, boy bands represent a teenage girl's terror of her own sexuality. Huh? Is this a subject worthy of much thought? asked Todd. Well, if we're going to do this, let's do it right, said Justin, sucking breath through his teeth and sitting forward. We're looking at putting together a preteen propaganda machine. Ooh, good name for the band, Preteen Propaganda Machine, said Gerald. Jerry, sighed Justin, you can't have irony and say irony too. Plus it sounds like a bad translation of the name of a Chinese youth marching band. But can you do the smoldering thing? asked Al. I can do anything with a good enough reason, said Justin. Give a man a why, he can bear almost any how, he quoted. Nietzsche's disciples, said Gerald. He obviously considered himself the idea hamster for the band name. Yeah, that would go over well, muttered Todd. Look, said Justin, girls are terrified of their own power over boys, and they are terrified of the disembodied penis, and no, Gerald, that would not be a good name for the band. They desperately want to be loved for their own precious selves at the same time that nature has cloaked them in their hottest finery. But all illusions lead to exploitation. This woman will grow up bitter and marry the wrong man. Um, said Al slowly, you're not planning on taking this tack in interviews, are you? Justin laughed. Of course not. But we'll get a lot further if we know what we are doing. Chris grinned, crossing his legs. Oh, this is a leg up from the dance steps I was thinking about. Justin stood up and stared at Al's little whiteboard. Now, the boy band is a wonderful invention because it represents the four, or in our case five, elements of a complete personality. He turned around to face them. The light from Al's little window reflected from his eyes in two little beads off to one side, as if he were looking slightly away. I am the extrovert, he continued, in which case we need an introvert as well. He tapped his lips. Gerald, I think... And we'll also need a dangerous, sexy one. Todd, can you grow that jazz thing on your chin? I think so. And get that Stanley Kowalski thing going. You know, look at every woman as if you want to fuck your mother through her. Good Lord, cried Al. I can do that, smiled Todd. Have you seen my stepmom? Actually, said Justin, I was thinking of her for our CD cover. I'm fairly sure we can find good shots of her on the Internet. Or good shots on her on DisplacedEatable.com. Hey! cried Al, leaning forward. Enough! Now, we also need the chaperone who represents the sexual restraint. Someone who looks slightly older. Chris? Sure. Should I get a paunch? No, just smile without guile. Just look, you know, happy to be there. Slightly amused, perhaps. 
In interviews, you always get the last say, and we nod and defer. Now, we also need a party boy, also known as the pretty thing, and that's quite easy. Ian has the best hair. He touched it. While it's true that I exude a strange sexuality, I'm not exactly gorgeous. You're pretty enough, and don't worry, the video cam keeps moving. You'll need to dye it blonde. Um, Justin, said Ian. Yo. I can't sing. Right. Justin turned to Al. Please note that Ian will never do a solo album, but you can really dance. Ian smiled, and his smile was almost shy. Well, uh, thanks, but I didn't think you wanted me in the band. Justin ruffled Ian's hair. Sure, come along, my unicorn. There's room on the ark for all. So, I'm in a boy band, said Ian, shaking his head slowly. Now, our relationship to homosexuality. What? said Ian, looking up quickly. Actually, to homosexuals. Gay culture, like teenage culture, is youth and looks obsessed. A gay man faces the same problem as the teenage girl. He wants to be loved for who he is, whom he is, corrected Ian. Oh, you anal little grammar Nazis. All right. He wants to be loved for whom he is, but cannot attract men without looking great. Gay men are sensitive because they're feminine, but are brutalized by sexuality because they are men without restraint. They also believe that homosexuality is far more common than it really is, and love to read gay t subtext into everything, you know, like cop buddy movies, the armed forces, bachelors who lift weights, and boy bands, of course. Put five pretty boys alone on a bus for long enough, you just know it's going to be a bumpy ride. They love dancing to remixes of straight songs done by outfits like the Backdoor Boys. What better fun than pretending you have discovered a joke even the perpetrators didn't know existed? Listen, closet boy, said Ian, this is a bit more detail than is useful unless you have something else to say. Never underestimate the purchasing power of gay men, said Justin. What do they have to save for? Buying Brazilian boys in their dotage? asked Todd. No, let's not get into the sad land of elderly gay men, said Justin, but we have to be very subtle about our homosexual references. Who'll be writing our songs? Al blinked and shrugged, returning from some reverie. Don't know, we could uh, get a team together, we'll shoot some covers, send the videos around, see who bites. What if any of us want to contribute? asked Justin. Al laughed. Good God, no, where would you have to go then? Go? You do the boy toy thing first, and then the serious artist thing. The album where you start writing your own shit is an event. You can't blow your wad too soon. Well, we are teenagers, muttered Todd. Shut up, Thumbelina, said Justin. Fuck you. Justin shrugged. Hey, I call him like I see him. All right, said Al. Now, any of you dickwads do drugs? Anyone? Drinking? Not really, said Todd. That's so last millennium, added Chris. Well, who's going to start? Huh? Al leaned back in his chair, hitching up his pants, wedgie all over his face. About eighteen months after your first big success, one of you has to go kind of squirrely. Keeps you in the media, gives the girls a good reason to, for candlelit vigils. Remember, Justin, to really get women, you have to hit not only the slut in them, but the mother. Nicely put. I'll do drinking, but not drugs, said Todd. But I'll only drink those little airline bottles. Gives me a chance to flirt desperately with the stewardesses. Justin shook his head quickly. No, it has to be either the sensitive or the pretty one. Definitely not the chaperone. All right, sighed Ian. I'll take the bullet for the band. Nothing that screws up the hair, though, said Justin. And if it's hard drugs, we'll lose parents. I really don't like to drink, though, said Ian. Marijuana, said Al. Suggesting or offering? Ian shook his head. I get nothing but bad trips the last few times I tried it. Not good. Bad trips? Where are we, 1967? That kind of talk makes my pants flare. So, no drugs, no drinking, said Al. Shit, you kids are hard to corrupt. There was a pause. Ian suddenly stiffened and then whispered in that hushed tone he used when he stumbled on something truly good. Anorexia. Wow, murmured Justin, licking his lips. Wow. What the fuck? asked Al. No, no, said Justin, that is right on the edge of genius. A pretty boy with anorexia, they'll cream their size two jeans. 
but it'll make him a dancing stick figure, protested Al. Who'll want to see that? No, no, he wears baggy pants. Don't you all? Really baggy pants. Justin's eyes shone, his hands waved. The rumors grow. Is he ill? Too much stress. He's seen eating a lot, but still he loses weight. What could be going on? And then it is revealed. Worms, cried Terry. He has an eating disorder, and... Bam! He's on the cover of every weepy Men Destroy Our Lives, so let's learn how to give them better orgasms magazine. Oprah, commended for his bravery, his honesty, choking, weeping, accepting a power bar. Oh, my God! cried Justin, almost swooning back into the couch. What? This fucking seals up the gay community. Anorexia, said Gerald, the illness for insecure chicks and those who like dicks. Gay men are ridiculously body conscious. Anyone who dates white men has eating disorders. They'll go ape over this. Sure, shrugged Al. What the fuck? Now, there are two other issues we have to deal with. First, I have to fuck you with the contract. Justin nodded slowly. Honestly put? Well, I'm too old to bullshit you. This contract will fuck you, yes, but not as badly as some other contracts. Ian smiled, holding up his hands. So less prison cell and more boarding school. Sure, said Al, holding up the contract. This is 10% of your earnings, but I'm not a label, uh, so I'll help you get a little less fucked by them. But you're all smart, lads. Going off to school, this is luck. What do you care? How does this obligate you? asked Justin. Well, I have to send you flowers tomorrow, grinned Al. And then I have to front the cost for the initial CD press and video to drum up interest. I also have to pay for travel expenses for your interviews. What about gigs? asked Terry. Gigs? Al threw back his head and laughed richly. Oh, Lord, you won't be seen out of a studio for the first six months. Don't worry about live performances. We need a kick-ass video, some good covers, and you guys have got to get your rolls down pat. You can wrap all this sociology shit you want with me, but zip it in front of the big suits. Big suits? Can we call them BS for short? asked Gerald. And you'll learn to unlip that face right quick, said Al, brandishing a pointed finger. Ooh, Britishisms! I was waiting, cried Todd. "'The Beatles you ain't!' shouted Al, his face turning suddenly red. "'If you want me to spend tens of thousands of my own dollars on you lot, "'you'd better commit to doing a professional, straight-up job when other people are around. "'You sign this, we're a family, which means fucked up on the inside and shiny on the outside. "'Is that clear?' "'Yes, of course,' grinned Justin, taking up a pen. "'You know, this is the kind of undertaking I could really commit to.'